This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. As far as a legacy goes, says IBM Chairman Sam Palmasano, I just want to leave the company better than I found it. Judging by IBM's successes over the past decade, Palmasano, who was CEO of IBM until he stepped down earlier this month, did just that. During an interview with Wharton management professor Michael Usim, Palmasano discussed the sale of the company's personal computer business, the PricewaterhouseCoopers acquisition, how a big company can encourage innovation, and what he learned from his mentors, among other observations drawn from almost 40 years at IBM. This is Mike Hussein. I'm a member of the Wharton School faculty, and today I'm at the headquarters of IBM here in Armonk, New York, with Sam Pomisano, who joined IBM in 1973, became chief executive in 02, and today, having stepped down nine days ago as chief executive, he continues as chairman of the company. Sam, it's my uh, privilege to have a chance to uh, talk with you, and I'm going to pick up on that moment when you did become chief executive here of the company back in 02. And as you look back on the challenges you faced as you, after many years with the company, now were responsible for the entire company, just to reflect on uh, those early days back in 02, what did you see as the biggest challenges for your leadership taking over at that time? Well, I think it's, you know, and you first take over, it's hard to separate uh, your leadership from the company itself uh, because Basically, when you're a brand new CEO, I mean, I was president for a period of time, you know, so 18 months or so, and I had run all the businesses along the way. I've been here all 40 years now. So it isn't like I didn't have experience with the operations of the IBM company. But uh, as Lou said to me, and as I said to Ginny, until you're in it, you can't describe it. And so you, you start out just trying to manage the company, which is a big complicated thing, even though you grew up in it. So your first reaction is, I have to keep the performance going. And uh, and we had a wonderful financial performance. We had righted the course financially. Uh, I didn't believe at that time we had done the business transformation. I mean, remember, we got ourselves in trouble. Uh, we missed the shift and got the PC, but we missed that client-server shift and got ourselves... Uh, financially in trouble because of that shift, margin pressure, restructuring the company, et cetera. So we've been through a lot of financial transformation or change, but not business model transformation. So I really believed in the beginning that when I had to keep the business going at the same time, uh, start the transformation of the business model. I didn't think the business model as it was at that point in time was going to sustain itself over the next 10 or 15 years. Just say why not. Well, primarily because of technical trends and the macroeconomic environment. Yeah. Um, and by that I mean, when I say to start the technology trends, uh, the dot-com bubble had just collapsed. So uh, all of the uh, valuations in tech had been reset because of the bubble. And also there was excess inventory uh, because of a bubble. And everyone in the industry was telling itself that it was going to return. The PC would return. Mm -hmm. It just was a, a, it was a cycle, an economic cycle. And we believed at IBM, and I really strongly believe myself, that it was a systemic shift, that this platform that had propelled the industry for 15 or 20 years, which these platforms do, that's their course, Norm, if you look at the history of our industry, uh, had run its course, and it wasn't going to be the future. 
And so if it wasn't going to be the future, we needed to shift to the future because we learned a lesson of when we didn't shift because we missed the PC shift, even though we invented it, you know, we didn't exploit it. So I thought that was important. And then the other one, which was pretty obvious, but now is extremely obvious, is the fact that the world was going to economically begin to globally integrate and that these emerging countries are going to become, as they are in 2012, the lion's share of economic growth and that we needed to get a company positioned to take advantage of that, both participate in the markets as well as access the skills and resources, build the relationships, you know, all the things it takes to really take advantage of those kinds of opportunities. I'm going to pick up on that and ask a question about how you saw the future five or ten years out, evidently better than many other people in the, in the technology industry. And I say that by way of uh, picking up on the notion that to transform the company to become what it should be, looking that far out, you do have to have an appreciation for what's out there that's better than a lot of your competitors. Many want to become more savvy about where the industry and where the markets are going. Uh, here at IBM, you've probably done that better than most out there. So what, Sam, was your secret of coming to know what that future entailed? Well, I think the, on the technology side, we have a wonderful research organization. And uh, I know a lot of people under business model pressure really curtail research investments. We haven't, obviously have not. We still spend $6 billion a year on research and development. But it's a huge brain trust. So uh, we have, we do this thing called the Global Technology Outlook. It's about a 10-year view. <clears throat> and we argue about these trends. And they're, they're real debates at the top of the business. It's almost like a faculty environment. You know, it's a peer review in a sense. The research scientists come in, they say, these are the technology trends. The business guys will argue that they don't see it that way or what's the business model impact of that trend. You know, the usual debates that you'd have, and it goes on. And uh, so I think that, you know, probably a lot of companies had those debates, as I would say. I don't think there was anything in the technology that we were seeing that others weren't seeing. We just decided to act upon it, you know, right? And so uh, others chose not to act upon it. Uh, and I understand that because when the PC thing came along, we almost failed. We saw the trend. We invented it with Microsoft and Intel, but we didn't exploit it because we were wedded to the past, a business model called the mainframe. Uh, there were people that were phenomenally successful in the PC era that were wedded to a business model. And I said, well, what is Act 2? In IBM's case, it's like Act 5 after because we're 100 years old. But a lot, a lot of companies have a hard time seeing what I'll call the Act 2 because they get so wedded to the product, so wedded to the financial uh, rewards of their business model if they've been successful. And they just don't see, or if they see, they uh, have a, a conservative view upon acting. They're slow to act, you know, right? They think, well, maybe it's wrong, maybe it's really not going to happen, I'm making so much money in this business, do I really want to take the risk of transformation? Can I get the people there? I mean, you know, these are all questions that you, you're going to ask yourself before you take this on. Let me ask, if you were haunted as you did take charge back in 02 by the not so far back in the past near-death experience that IBM went through in the early 1990s, that's when Lou Gerstner right. came in, got the ship back on course, but that was uh, pretty tense there in 1993, right. 1994. You were here at the time. To what extent did that near-death look affect your thinking as you took charge in 02? Well, I mean, you learned the impact of missing the shift. 
you know, I mean, we all knew it because, I mean, you can put it in stark terms. We went from a peak of uh, 412,000 people down to a bottom of 217. So 200,000 of our friends were no longer here, you know, right? And most people at companies that wouldn't have the balance sheet of the cash flows of IBM would never have made it. You know, you, you wouldn't have gotten through it. But because of our strength of our balance sheet and our cash assets and things, we could get through that, right, uh, and deal with all the restructuring charges that we had to take. So uh, you learned it. And if you look at the history of IBM, and uh, this is our centennial year, I've been sort of studying this anyway, just getting prepared for the centennial. If you go back to the Watsons, what they were really good at, they, they didn't miss the shifts. They always moved to the future. Even though it was a father and a son, they moved from, you know, scales and meat weighing and all that, cheese slicing machines to tabulators to modern to office products, typewriters, selective typewriter, to modern computing. That's what the son did because the 360, huge bet on the product called the 360, bet the company at the time, like an entrepreneur would, you know. Different than you'd see, I think, in a large company today, but that was the father-son, and they rolled the dice, and so that became the modern computing era. But that's what it was, you know, so you saw the fact, if you missed the shift, the impact of missing the shift, you see it, you see it all the time, uh, especially in, uh, it's true in technology industries because most of the companies are so young. So if you look at a lot of the people that have a great start, they could run for 10, 15, maybe 20 years, but then there's no act two. The founder, the entrepreneur retires, what have you, maybe they physically can't go any longer, whatever, and then there isn't this act two. So if they don't come back, management comes in, but they really struggle with moving to the future. That's the challenge. Uh, and I just think technology is more ruthless, I mean, as, as an industry, because it's not forgiving versus other industries where it, it's not as abrupt and as harsh in its correction. You know, among the ways that you transformed the company, 02 through today, were some of these landmark decisions, for example, to acquire PwC, right. to sell the PC line back there in 0405, to get into the cloud before some other people did. Yes. Talk a bit about how you reached those critical transformative decisions. Well, if you go through, let's uh, start, you know, the, I think, you know, they're, they're, they're all different in a way. Um, so I'll, I'll take them very quickly. I won't dwell on each one, but say, uh, Pricewaterhouse was really about the fact that we felt that the technology was going to become embedded in the business process. So it was going to be buy a computer and apply a computer. There was no separation. We call this thing sensors and, and, and real-time information, now Smarter Planet, right? We saw that occurring. So we needed more knowledge of the business process. When we did the PwC acquisition, I mean, we had a good valuation for it. But besides that, you know, people ask me, well, you know, what was this all about? I said, well, we're already the largest IT services company, so it's not about being bigger when you're the largest. It's about having assets and skills we didn't have. And PwC had really deep insight in healthcare and financial systems and the like, where we understood technology, we understood how to apply technology to a banking system or to the healthcare system, but we didn't know the process of a payment system or trading derivatives or what have mm -hmm. you, the deep process knowledge. And so, the, our, the colleagues that came from PwC gave us that knowledge. Now, we married it to the technology guys, we married it to the research, and it led to a lot of the things that have become Smarter Planet. But that's what we were missing, so we were trying to add to a technology gap, or a skill gap, really, in that sense. Uh, to me, PC was um, culturally hard, but simple economically. I mean, it was the easiest business decision I've ever made. 
Now, how you do it and who, who do we partner with, that was complicated. But when you looked at the PC and where it was headed, and again, this is, we looked, this is 2003. We did the transaction, I believe, in 05. But we ran the model, uh, and you could see, you could see it was going to become consumer. And we were positioned in the enterprise. Uh, and Dell was also enterprise. Uh, HP was more consumer because of their printer business. And you had the uh, Toshibas of the world, the Aces of the world. You had a lot of guys that were very consumer-oriented. But Dell and IBM were primarily the enterprise guys. And so was the old Compaq, but Compaq then moved to HP, which became more consumer. When you saw this thing moving cons consumer, you could see that the, uh, the economics of the business were not going to be as attractive as they were, and they already weren't great. I mean, they really weren't. I mean, you, you were looking at a, you know, operating margin of 4% business, a 3% business, uh, without subsidies from Microsoft and Intel, and people say, well, what do you mean by subsidies? So it's in all the Justice Department suits, so it's not like it's not public information. When I say this, and people say, That's, what do you mean subsidies? Well, just read this filings. I mean, you know, it's all there. We're not making it up at IBM. We happen to be part of it, so we understood it. But uh, it's not a great business, and so, and it was going to be under pressure because of moving to the consumer space, more consumer electronics-like than enterprise-like. So the things that we could do, robust engineering, the great mobile ThinkPad, weren't going to be as valued in that space. And so that was a simple economic decision. <clears throat> the complexity of the decision was the part, who to partner with, who should we sell the asset to, could you get it approved? That was phenomenally complex. Let's dwell on that for just a second in that arguably a vital feature of anybody's leadership is the ability to think strategically, to right. appreciate all the pieces and all the players out there. I know you talked with the TPG about acquiring the PC line. Yes. Uh, you thought about Dell. Right. Ultimately, you sold to China's Lenovo, which had been a purely Chinese company up till that point. Why, why did you pick Lenovo? Well, the reason we did, and you know, this is one of these things that um, if you look at it tactically, the, the easiest transaction for us would have been a private equity transaction. The guys know what they're doing. TPG is a very professional firm. We know the guys, or there are others as well. General Atlantic, you know, they're guys that are really good at this stuff. They know exactly how to conclude a transaction, you know, right? Very little issues with government approval, you know, straightforward financial transaction, right? Um, however, when we looked at it, uh, we kind of came to the conclusion uh, that China was a huge space. I mean, we were uh, small there, uh, even with the PC business in the company, IBM China, and that if you looked at the economic model of China or the goals of the government, they were trying to expand beyond just be a domestic manufacturer or the largest you know, manufacturing company in the world, the big outsourcer for manufacturing, right? And that was uh, the government's ambition. You know, the premier and the president went in who, that was their goals, right? And so uh, we believe, as we, we do believe that, you know, as part of our roles of companies, why do you get permission to society to operate? Well, you need to partner with the societies where you operate. You, know, you just can't kind of be anti the society and expect a partnership. And so we felt that strategically, uh, I felt very strongly about this, that, that this was a better strategic transaction for IBM, even if the economics maybe weren't as attractive. But long term, this would be a better deal if we could align with a, uh, one of their champions, i.e. Lenovo. And so, uh, now that added a whole another level of complexity. 
Uh, there were a lot of people that advised me to be really hard to get this done, uh, and their advice was right. It was hard to get this done. I mean, they were not misguided, but they also believed we could get it done, but it was just going to be hard. Uh, and so we took a shot, and uh, it worked out. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to uh, have a partner, Lenovo, close the transaction from a, a deal perspective. And we, we worked with both the U.S. and the Chinese government, both sides, uh, to get the thing through. Mm -hmm. And it was complex, uh, but both governments ran a fair process. And this thing called CIFI is here. But if you run a fair process, and as the governments defined it, uh, it should have been approved, and it was approved. Uh, yep. As long as it doesn't become mm -hmm. politicized, that's a whole different, you know. Yep. Discussion. And we didn't think it would become politicized. It was a PC, after all. I mean, it wasn't some big national secret we were selling. I mean, all this stuff was manufactured in China anyway. Right. So it wasn't like we were giving something away they didn't already have. But, you know, we were fortunate the process didn't get politicized, because yeah. if it had become politicized, I, it might have become a different outcome. You know, these decisions to acquire PwC, to sell right. off the PC line, really helped define your leadership of the company. Another defining element, I believe, is the bringing to IBM uh, a commitment to develop leadership throughout yes. the ranks. And if, if Lou Gerstner, the prior CEO's signature or, or stamp on the company was to transform the culture, I think one of yours right. has been to think about, to focus on building leadership among the some 50,000 managers you have. Right. Why had you? Why had you earlier on chosen to give it that focus, and how how does that work? Right. Well, it goes back to the business model, and and by that I mean, uh, I believe, and I believe then that you can't run IBM from here. I mean, happen to, we're happy to be seeing our corporate headquarters in Armonk today for the audience. You can't do it, uh, and it's 170 countries. Today, 426,000 people, different cultures, different religions, different local priorities, and you need talent to do that. And you need people who can deal in a complex global world. And so, um, and we had this thing called globally integrate the IBM company and lower the center of gravity, which meant move, delegate more decision-making down. And it wasn't just an efficiency statement. A lot of people say, well, you're doing that because you want to get rid of overhead. Of course we need to get rid of overhead. We need to be competitive. I mean, that's an obvious. But that's not necessarily, some people don't connect that with have the talent that on the ground to actually operate the company and then have the business systems that they can do the analysis without having thousands of people do the analysis for them, the analytics. And of course, we should be good at computer models given the business that we're in, but nonetheless, you have to connect the two. So we felt it was really, really important that we develop that skill base. And so we invested uh, numerous programs, but many of the programs were beyond just traditional management development. And a lot of it was to give people a global perspective. Because if you're mm -hmm. going to globally integrate the company and you're going to expand in all these markets, they need to be able to operate in a multicultural environment. So one of the things we actually came up with called the Corporate uh, Citizens Corps, we actually took younger people in their careers and said, go off and work in Ghana or Tanzania or these emerging places, Nigeria or have you, uh, Philippines, and do some work with NGOs or the government, do some, you know, uh, do the foundation, do worthwhile projects, but establish relationships, work in a multicultural team because the team was formed from young town all over the world, you know, and spend six to nine months doing that and then come back and teach your colleagues what you've learned and we'll have more teams established. 
that was at kind of the um, early management level. The executive level, we created these things called get teams to go out and decide how we should enter in Egypt or what should we do to transform lowering the center of gravity. And we sent those guys around the world. But the goal was to give an IBM project, but then put them in a multicultural environment. Uh, the reason why we got there, I worked overseas before. I was in the old model, go off. I was in Japan. Mostly worked in IBM Japan at the tail end. I was in our Asian operation. Uh, so I learned what it was like to work in a non-US country, the J IBM Japan, with 20, those days, 23,000 Japanese and two Gaijing, <laughs> two Sams, CFO and myself. I was the operating guy. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount about how do you have to work in a different culture, uh, which was much harder than just the business problems we were trying to solve. And so I was sort of, uh, very sensitive to the importance of that, you know, that just because people aren't comfortable with English as their native language, that doesn't mean they don't have a lot to say. I mean, in how you communicate and all those subtleties of language and culture. And so it was really, really important. And if you believe, like we believed, and it's obvious today, that, you know, most of the economic growth was not going to come out of the G7. Uh, and that was a demographic statement. I mean, you know, people say, well, what do, you mean? what do you mean by that? I said, well, it's obvious because if you say once these governments decided they were going to engage in the global economy and the middle class was going to emerge, it had to be. I mean, if you have four or 500 million people entering the middle class, they're going to have to have health care systems. They're going to demand clean water. They're going to want a banking system. They'll have debits and credits. They'll buy homes. I mean, that's what happens, you know. And so that's what we do. I mean, we do all the IT associated with all those things. So that was obvious, you know, right, that that was going to occur. I mean, people argue the stability of the governments and all that. But if you take a longer-term view, which we did, we felt that we might as well get ahead of the curve. So you needed people. That was the economics of it. Uh, the business model is globally integrated IBM and operate as one, not 100 companies. And then you needed the people who had the management acumen and the cultural sensitivity to do that. And we spent a lot of time, we do spend a lot of time and money on that. I mean, um, I think the best example of it is this most recent secession we just went through. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Jenny was great. She earned the job. She's been here for 30 years. I mean, she's been all over the company, just like I had been all over the company. Uh, there were lots of other candidates for the job, you know, but she won, I mean, to her credit. <clears throat> Let's dwell on that for a yeah. second around the issue of mentoring and coaching. And I know that an axial right. principle of your leadership here is to provide lots of coaching, lots of mentoring. Looking back on your own right. career prior to 02, who would you single out as the most important mentor you had along the way? Well, it's interesting, you know, because I think the thing, I've had uh, so many people help me, and the key to having people help me, as I say, is you have to be a good mentee, hmm. right? Because you have to listen. And what happens as you become successful, you forget the ingredient of being a good mentee, <laughs> right? Which is listening to the people that are mentoring you. But I've had, uh, obviously, lots of previous mm -hmm. managers, previous CEOs, John Akers, Lou Gershner, other guys on the outside that are always willing to help, you know, uh, very successful if you ask and listen. You know, people are always willing to help you. I find that people aren't always willing to listen. And so... Uh, that's, I think, if you say, what's the, it, the, the shortcoming in being mentored, you have to be able to want to be mentored. Sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, right? It starts with that. And I, and I see it so often. Um, 
and the, that is the key. But you know, you have you know, either lots of role models uh, along the way. Uh, you know, people that were always uh, a good role model for me is they never put themselves first. Uh, they always put their institution or society or their enterprise mm -hmm. first, and usually they get better results. I mean, if you watch, if you say, well, why does it work? Because you get people more excited because they can contribute versus an individual trying to take all the bows for the team. And so uh, I actually, you know, you could say, well, I'm comfortable in that style. But if you put that aside for a second, I actually think it's a more successful product mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Let's go back on John Akers then, who was chief executive through 1993. Question about John, if you can single out one thing that you picked up from John, I'd like to hear about that. Then separately from Lou Gerson, who served before you from 1993 right. through 02, And then just to complete the question, right. as you've worked with your successor now, what did you pass on to her that, in your view, was among the most critical coaching elements that you <laughs> oh, provided? You'd probably be best asking her. She might find coaching a little yeah, sure, right? She's the recipient of my... Uh, Tutelage. No, uh, I think, you know, the thing, uh, I've learned a lot from everybody. And one of the things that John did that was most impactful to me anyway, was he's the one that sent me to Japan. And I was uh, in his office because we had this program at the time. And, you know, he had been the executive assistant to Kerry and Opal to Watson, who was another CEO. So it was one of these things where they groomed young people. It was a part of management development. So you worked for the chairman and the CEO as this flunky, basically. But mm -hmm. you did learn a lot, I mean. Mm -hmm. But you were as flunky. I mean, I don't wanna, you weren't chief of staff or something. I'm not trying to glorize the position. But uh, you were a refined administrative assistant. <laughs> so anyway, but you know, the, the thing was that, and I say that, and I was being offered all kinds of uh, very significant promotions in the US, and John said, no, you should do this. And there's a guy over there by the name of Takshina Shina-san, He's a great executive, and he'll teach you a lot. And I want you to go work in IBM Japan. And I, I'm in Japan. There's no structure to the job. I mean, what's, is, there, is there a position? Nope, you're working for him. He'll figure something out. When do I go? We'll go first of the year. And I had kids and family and, you know, I mean, all this sort of stuff. But I think, you know, what uh, I learned from that was what he was teaching me is that if you're going to be successful, you're going to have to learn to operate in all these different kinds of environments. And going back and doing something comfortable, even if it's a big position in the United States, is not going to prepare you for the future. So to get prepared for the future, right, you need to really put yourself in an uncomfortable space. Uh, yep. And, you know, not all, not all advice is always communicated, but you could see it, you know. So, no, you should just go do this, you know, right? And so and it, that was exactly what so it was. was from John, and then right. his successor, Lou Gerstner, Lou. what would you single out there? The thing there? that I learned about Lou is that uh, other than his phenomenal analytical capability, which uh, I can't, it's almost unmatched, but, you know, Lou always had the ability to put the market or the client first mm -hmm. and not, mm -hmm. and, and so the analysis always started the outside in, you know, right? And you could say, got us back connected with the marketplace with the customer, but that the point of it was to get the, court, the company and the analysis focused on outside in, not inside out. And I think when you miss these shifts, you're inside out. If you're outside in, you don't miss the shifts, right? Because they're going to hit you. Now, acting on them is a, you know, is a different uh, 
uh, characteristic, right? Mm -hmm. But you can't miss the shift if you're outside in. If you're inside out, it's easy to delude yourself from the shift. So he taught me the importance of uh, always take the view of outside in. And the other thing Lou does extremely well is always take the opposite position. Even if you believe the position that that's being represented as the correct position. And he does, he used to do that, and it, it drove a, a high level of uh, discussion, really, or debate. And you got to a better conclusion. And he was really good at it. I mean, I don't know if it was the McKinsey training or whatever, but he was really, really good at taking the opposite. Even when it seemed obvious to all of us, he would take the opposite position. So therefore, you had to go through the analysis to make sure that you're uh, your conclusions were correct, that your, conviction, your convictions were supported with data and those sorts of things. So outside in, uh, John was more personal development, so com com completely different things. Yep. I think the key with Ginny, which I've tried to you know, kind of really coach her f through, uh, is that, and it's a measure of, I think it's the most important measure, is you know, leave the enterprise better than you find it. That should be your measure of success. Don't get absorbed in the external metrics of success. You know, I mean, yeah, our stock has done extremely well. Terrific. I mean, we like that, right? Obviously. Everyone's been rewarded because of that. But the company is much better positioned today. We have better talent. The brand is stronger. We're much more innovative. We have deeper client relationships than we had. That's why large investors have come in, because they see what we have is more sticky, to use their terminology. Uh, so the company is in better shape. So think about you know, the next 10 years, you know, not the next 10 quarters here. What can you do to make leave the, your company in better shape than you found it? And it's not about you, the CEO. It's about the enterprise. And, you know, and she'll do that. I mean, I think she's the, that kind of personality. She's not absorbed in herself. I mean, she's absorbed in how do I take this thing to the next level? And a lot of the stuff we just, like analytics, smarter planning, we've just begun. I mean, so there's so much ahead of us. Going into Africa, we just started, you know what I mean? So people say, well, what more can be done? We just, we just entered Africa. I mean, we, you know, it's going to be the next China in 10, 15 years. And so those kinds of things, smarter planet, you know, we have thousands. We started with 100 references. We have thousands. We should have tens of thousands, you know, before this thing's all said and done. So it really is about, to me, it's about that. I think it's the most important thing. Now, I mean, I understand the whole time I was in the job that the external measure is very short-term oriented. It's earnings and stock performance. They're distorting compensation today tied to that. It's a huge distortion, my personal opinion, uh, which will only destroy value over the long term. And that's driven by people who don't understand value creation, either third parties or government organizations who are looking for something simplistic to measure and reward against something complex. And it won't work. Uh, we were blessed in a way because we came up with this long-term model, the 2010 roadmap and now the 2015 roadmap. And we were uh, lucky that we could convince the investor that it was good and it made sense. If we hadn't been able to persuade them, then of course we would have had to have changed. But the investor, I mean, I agree on the 2010 roadmap. They all said we could never do it. We did it a year in advance in the terrible economy. They said, well, incredible. Now they look at the 2015 roadmap and they say, well, God, they're going to beat that. They're well ahead of that already. I mean, well, that's their conclusions, you know. But my only point is we came up with a methodology that fit where you could take that longer-term view, you could focus on the company 
it did, did create, and stock's up 100%, so it did create shareholder value. Uh, we've outperformed everything. Uh, so, so I'm going to pick up on right. that and uh, make the statement that your leadership of the company, the forward-looking, right. the outward-looking in, is really a product of many events over, the, over your lifetime and your career. Right. So I'm going to begin to conclude here with a couple right, okay. more personal questions on that. Uh, you came out of uh, college. You joined in sales back in 1973, right. IBM, your first job out. You did have an opportunity to try out for the Oakland Raiders. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, on a very personal uh, frontier here, have you ever had a regret that you didn't actually uh, give that a try at the time? Uh, uh, no. I, I, I tell you, it's a funny, uh, a quick funny story. Friends of mine actually, we were playing D3 football, Division Three football, mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's below the Ivies, even. You know, I mean, uh, nonetheless, I mean, you know, we play Fordham in Columbia or something. Maybe you know, we'd have a really hard time, and Columbia doesn't have a great record. So that's where we were. That's our position in football at Hopkins. Lacrosse is different, but this was football. And so, anyway, friends of mine actually did try out for professional football, but they were receivers and punters and things. So I said, and I was going to have to gain weight. I, my playing weight was like 235. In those days, I could have, the position, I could be maybe 250, 260. I would have been mid-sized, not like today, would be 300 or something. But in those days, 40 years ago, I could have put on 25 or 30 pounds uh, of muscle, not fat. <laughs> Probably fat would have been easier. But no, I asked my friends, I said, so what was it like? What do you think? And they said, the position you're playing, like a center or a defensive end, it, we made it two weeks as receivers, you'll be dead. <laughs> You're gonna, they're going to kill you. <laughs> so I said, well, maybe I still want to do that. I should, and they said, yeah, why don't you go on a diet, lose 25 pounds, not gain 25 pounds. So, um, and that was, so I never had any regrets uh, about that at all. I mean, I, I just didn't, I don't think I had the physical characteristics yeah. to have been successful. I mean, maybe I would have been especially player for a couple of years, but then I would have been broken up, you know, shoulders and knees, what have you, right? Well, let's turn that around. Right. Uh, with a great interest in football in your college right. days, not to mention music and history, yes. how has sports, music, and history informed how you lead in, in years since then? Well, I think pr probably the, of the thing that uh, if you go through all those characteristics. Um, history in the sense that it does give you a sense of perspective, you know, right? And you see things in a continuum of time, which is uh, one of the things I think uh, that has influenced me is this view that, I mean, I really did, I grew up with the Watsons, but then I studied the Watsons, not just because of the centennial. And then we got back into the values. I had read the book, A Company Its Beliefs, when I first took over see a first annual meeting, even though I had to read it as a new employee, you know, so I went back through all that stuff again. So you, you have this inclination to understand and study what worked in the past, understanding that it repeats itself. And I'll give you a good example. I mean, at post-World War II, the Watsons expanded into a lot of the European markets at that point in time, <coughs> expanded IBM's global footprint well ahead of its time, you know, opened up facilities, Berlin and places like that. But then, of course, as Europe, you know, NATO and Europe reconstructed itself, right, we had huge benefit of those decisions that the Watsons had made later, but certainly huge benefit associated with that. Well, I mean, that today is the correlation is what Gini created in the growth market units. He's the, the Chinas, the Brazils, the Indias, the Russias, the Eastern Europe, the Africas. It's the same thing. Expand the footprint, you know, right beyond just where you've been concentrated historically. So you can see how that repeats itself. I think on the sports things, you learn in sports 
really, and even in music, you learn the importance of orchestration or teamwork, because if you don't work together, it doesn't work, right? And you also, especially in sports, you learn competitiveness, and, and you, uh, you realize that you have to work together, you have to, in many ways, I was in a selfless positions, and you know, I mean, literally, center, defensive end, it's a selfless position, you know, really. I was in the orchestra, I wasn't the, the star performer, I was in a pit, with a miner's helmet and a light reading music playing. <laughs> My role was not exactly a big role, right? I was just in the, the, literally the pit with a light on your head trying to read the music, you know, with 20 other people, whatever it happened to be. So except it for what it was. I was never the star yeah. performer. So you, you were always in a role, and you were always trying to be part of this entity or a team that made things successful. So I think that has an effect. And you need to be competitive. I mean, there's no doubt that in, to survive uh, the job of CEO for 10 years or even for any period of time, you have to have stamina, resilience, and you have to be competitive and some self-awareness because you can't get through the ups and the downs. I mean, you, you, there's a lot of ups and downs, you know. Let, let's take that forward right. with this uh, question. In almost 40 years at the company, a decade as chief right. executive, you've made hundreds more than hundreds of, dis uh, of major decisions. Looking back on your bigger decisions, what was the toughest single decision and why was that hard to make at the time? The hardest decision, of the hardest decision for me was not the PC, it had to be the PC. <clears throat> it really wasn't because yeah. it was so economically straightforward. The hardest decision for me was t uh, dealing with the pension problem uh, because you were touching the fabric of the business and we had to. I mean. Our pension liability was bigger than our revenue, and we had to make the change. Uh, and, you know, it's obvious to us, uh, you know, the senior management of the company, it should be obvious today to state and local governments and federal governments and the like, you know, right? But it takes a lot of courage and will to make the decision because you're touching so many people. So you have to have the balance of the change with fairness. And so, uh, and by that, I mean, I won't take you through all the details of how we did it, but we, we, we made sure that certain populations that could have been more severely impacted than others, we gave them a more uh, attractive transition because it was fair. Didn't make it easy, you know, for anybody. I mean, we eliminated all the executive plans as well. So everybody was affected top to bottom. But again, if you stand back and you make that statement, our liability was bigger than our revenue. People said, of course you had to make the change. But at the time, it was controversial. There were going to be special bills in the legislature called the IBM Amendment that they were being sponsored by people in the legislature. We almost ended up in the Supreme Court. I mean, now you look at the states and you look at the federal government problems today with pensions and say, well, it's obvious. They're bankrupt. It's obvious. Well, nobody's making a change. Uh, so that's hard. I mean, I used that example. That was a really mm -hmm. hard, gut-wrenching decision because you're touching so many people's lives. You know you have to do it or you're not going to survive. You can be an airline or a car company. You know, you, you have a role model out there that says, if you don't, this is what you are. You know, I got it. Okay, right? You don't want to be that, but you still have to do it. And, you know, it's, it'd be, could you push it off to your successor? You could, you know, right? I, I just didn't think it was the right thing to do. And it, political, the political timing was not so great. I mean, because these problems... Warren is aware. Today, I think it'd be easier because everybody sees what they are. You know, look at the problems, you know. But then, this was a, well ahead of when they became obvious to society. Sam, you were not 
shy about making the big decisions, right. facing up to them, getting them done, executing around them. As you have coached others, mentored people right. that have come up through the ranks in the company, is there a line of advice that you offer up for them to make face up right. to and then make tough decisions? How would you phrase that if you're with yeah. a mentee? Yeah, the easiest way, if you don't put yourself first, they're easy decisions to make. Mm -hmm. If you take yourself, if it's not about you, I mean this in all sincerity, because if you're worrying about your reputation or your legacy or whatever, the, if you put something first beyond the institution, yeah. then it's hard because your reasoning's clouded, right? Because you've got these dimensions of thought that aren't based on reality because it's your own personality, right? But if you just look at it and say, no, it's not about me, it's about the future of the IBM company. How does IBM stay sustainable for the next 100 years? It's simple, but you know, now that's a, you know, it's not, I mean, it's psychologically complex, I guess, you know, right? For me, it was always easy, but you know, you can see people that dwell with that all the time. They, you can watch them make this trade-off between themselves and the institution. And whenever they make that trade-off, my opinion, one individual, when you bias it to yourself versus the institution, then it gets really hard and you make the wrong decisions. You gotta be able to almost put yourself <clears throat> in this third party state, which I tell them all this, a third party state, as if you're just, that you're a temporary steward in time. And you know, that's what you are. You're not, you're not the charismatic le leader, you're not gonna be the messiah. You're, you're, a temporary, you're a business guy, you're a temporary steward of a wonderful institution, and your role is to preserve the institution. It's not about yourself. And if they pan you, they pan you. They're going to pan you. Okay, fine, so be it. You know, right? Don't read your press clips. I learned that in sports. Never read your press clips. You know, among your biggest decisions along the way, made every year actually, is to continue to invest in research and development. Right. So your R&D budget is one of the biggest out there in our universe. Uh, in, in making that decision, uh, it's pretty obvious, right. but you, you've committed to the future of the company through technology and innovation. Right. Stepping back from that, Want to share with us some of the secrets of remaining innovative here at IBM? Oh, yeah. Well, the key is, I mean, <clears throat> you, you have to, if you want to be rewarded with higher margins, you have to do unique things. You can't do what everybody else does, right? So that's why in technology it's research. I think it's true for any business, mm -hmm. by the way. If you don't do anything, my question is, why would they give you your money? Why would they invest in you? Why would they work for you? Why would society let you operate? But why would they give you their money as a client, you have to do unique things, which means you have to innovate and you have to invent, right? So that's the key. So you have to start with funding it and you have to have the smart people. Uh, beyond that, you need a process that encourages it, you know? So you need to let these guys come up with these ideas and give them some runway, because not everything is gonna be perfect, right? Uh, you know, I mean, for example, there's a great story around Watts and the Jeopardy machine, which now we're commercializing it. But the wonderful story was, uh, we were, I was, because I go to research once a year and I tell these guys, show me what you're thinking about. What's going to change society? What's going to change business? What's going to be, in fact, IBM? So they had all these technologies. And I said, all these, and I go, you know, you, know, you can barely understand them and I'm around this stuff every day. So I said to the guys, you know, we need, we need this game. You know, we need something people can understand, you know? How about a game, like a video game, they can play it and then we'll give scholarships to the kids that win, to their schools if they get into the top school. Wouldn't that be great? So then these guys are off and they're in a bar and they're uh, watching 
of course, what are you actually doing in the bar? You're having a beer, you know, whatever they're doing, and they're watching Jeopardy. And this guy, Ferrucci, actually is the, you know, the inventor behind the machine, David. He looks up and he goes, you know, we could do that. We could do that. So he goes into the head of research. I thought it was Paul Horn in those days, and that's John Kelly. It was Paul. And said, hey, we could do this. We could, we could, we could win that game. We could, we could play Jeopardy. We could win. And, uh, and Paul goes, come on, nobody can do this. You know, the touring principles and all the science he's arguing back. And then the guy goes, just give me $10 million to get started. Just give me $10 million to get started. Yeah, it's not a lot of money, and it's $6 billion, right? He goes, so Paul goes, here, take the $10 million. And goes, Go hire some people and see what you can do. And then they came back three, whatever it was, two, three years later, and they invent this thing, you know, right? So you have to have a management system that encourages these people you know, right, and give them a little bit of funding, not get carried away, you know, they'll give them $100 million to fool around, you know, right, but give them some money to get them started and see where it goes. Uh, and I also think innovation also applies to the business model, like globally integrated and IBM, you know, running this one company and scaling it. I mean, you can do the same thing on business process, too, by the way, as far as how we operate the company, applying analytics and all those sorts of things. But you need to give people the flexibility, you know, and the problem is that if you trade it off, um, and, I, and I just, one guy's opinion, I feel strongly about this, but six billion a year, just think how many quarters we could have made cutting out the six billion. You know, we didn't. We still had record performance, you know? We have record, record, mm -hmm. record, record cash, record earnings, record this, record that, you know, right? But we didn't, and because we kept investing. But, you know, you, you can respond to the, uh, the pressures that are put on you multiple different ways, Easy thing for us to have been to just keep cutting that thing down. Other companies in tech have done it, and then you see what happens over time. So I really go back to this uh, creating an environment or culture of innovation, uh, put the enterprise ahead of the individual, you know, right? You're a temporary mentor, you're a temporary steward of time. Look at yourself in the context, I guess it's my history major. Look in the context of history, which you are, not in the context of yourself at the moment, and you reach a different set of conclusions. Uh, you've presided for a decade over a company that has more than a hundred year history. I think you've had right. nine chief executives going back over a hundred years. This is a company that indeed was built to last. Right. As people look back on your reign here as chief executive of IBM, what do you hope they will see as your legacy? I just hope, and like I said, that I left it better than I got there. You know, I mean, if they, if people would say that. Adios, I'd be happy as can be. And then the other thing is that uh, the ability to take IBM into more of these global markets uh, and globalize the back office of the company. But most importantly, I mean, that's how we got the better than where we were when I started, but uh, that's it. Uh, it's too simple, I understand. As I say, it's so boring and so old-fashioned, it's like our earnings. They're so predictable and they're so boring, there's no surprise. It's a, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. so dull, it's like 30 years old. Uh, nobody thinks that way anymore, but I really do believe that. You know, I mean, if you're a company that's 100 years old, be consistent in what you do. That's a financial statement, right? Be consistent, no surprises. You're 100 years old, act like you're 100 years old. You know? Don't act like you're 100 months old. You know? And then the other side of it is just define it as, is the institution better off because of the time you spent there? Uh, and it's, it's like I said, it's so, it's so boring, nobody's going to be excited about it. None of your students are going to go jump up and down and say, I really just want to leave it better than I found it. That is uninspiring. You know, I got it. You know, I have all these kids that go to those schools like yours now, so I understand what, they, what motivates them, what they're taught. But I, uh, for me, it works, mm -hmm. you know, right? And I think it's, and it's worked in the only time, I think, that 
we ever got in trouble at IBM is we missed the shift, you know, right? And or people put themselves ahead of the company, you know. Let me close by yeah. thanking you, Sam, sure. for your well, your 40 years at the company, your decade uh, as leader of the company, for helping us appreciate what it took to do what right. you've done. Arguably, you took a company that was good under right. Lou Gerstner's turnaround and, and made a great. Want to wish you well. You continue you. as chairman of the board here and wish you well for whatever lies ahead. So thank you very much. Oh, great. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay, thank you. See you. Great. Okay. Nice seeing you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.